Hey, welcome to Scratching the Surface. I'm Jared Fuller, and this is a podcast about architecture and research. Today on the show, I have a wide-ranging conversation with the architect, writer, and educator, Winka Doubledom. Winka is a principal and the founder of Architectonics, a research-focused architecture studio based here in New York, whose work spans objects to buildings to urban planning. She is also the chair of the architecture program and a professor of practice at the University of Pennsylvania, where she's thinking about the future of architecture practice and the role of technology in the design process. In this conversation, Winka describes architecture as a container for whatever she is interested in, which for those of you who listen to the show a lot know that that definition really resonated deeply with me. So we talk about that and what that means and how she defines and thinks about architecture. We talk about her practice and how she thinks about the field. We talk about the role of research in her work and her early interest in philosophy. We also talk about teaching and how she splits her time between practice and academia and where those two sides cross over for her. If you're a fan of the podcast and want to help support it, you can become a member for $5 a month or $50 a year. I am really proud that Scratching the Surface has been, since it began, entirely listener-supported. So I am able to do this show in many ways because of these memberships. That means that by becoming a member, you help with the ongoing production of the show, and it truly means so much to me. Members get an exclusive monthly newsletter that is written by me uh, in your inbox every month as well as previews of the upcoming episodes. If you like Scratching the Surface and want to see it continue and want to help with its ongoing production, please consider becoming a member. For all of the details, all you have to do is visit scratchingthesurface.fm slash members. Thank you, as always, for listening, and enjoy this conversation with Winka Dubledam. couple of weeks or so I've been thinking about you and thinking about your work and doing a lot of reading about you and interviews that you've done and something that really immediately stuck out to me is how often this word research comes up when people are talking about you or writing about you about that uh, that your studio is research driven that research is a big part of your practice mm-hmm. uh, I found an interview that you had done where you were talking about being in school and not necessarily feeling always intellectually engaged and you were interested in philosophers and reading philosophy and theory. And so it sounds like this idea of research, of kind of intellectualism, of the theory of architecture is something that has been with you through your entire practice. And so I kind of want to start there and, and ask about where that came from, or if you have thoughts on kind of this idea of research and theory as a part of your practice, how that came about? Mm. That's a great question. Yeah. Um, I guess, you know, at some point you learn about yourself that, that who you are and, and what you're interested in. And I realized very, very early on that I was very interested in making things, like literally making. I can weld, I can work with steel, wood, whatever. Um, and then on the other hand, I need to really, uh, I read as a kid, the whole children library. Oh yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so I was kind of a nerd, um, so a <laughs> weird left, right brain combination here. 
Mm-hmm. And uh, so initially I started sculpture, realized that I loved sculpture, but I didn't uh, understand what I would be as a sculptor in mm-hmm. the world and how I could, mm-hmm. you know, contribute in, in mm-hmm. a way I felt was for me. Uh, I'm not saying this about anyone else, but uh, for me, like relevant and, and interesting. So I switched to architecture and um then first studied architecture in Holland, where I'm from, uh, is in essence a great study. Uh, we're very we're free to invite people to, you know, mm. be your professors. Um, but I realized that in Holland we we have a very strong uh, focus on design and detailing mm. and structures, but not on uh, theory or or philosophy, as you just mentioned. Mm-hmm. So I um, found a philosopher. In Delft, uh, I lived in Rotterdam, this person lived in Delft, and I called him one day and said, would you mind if I come and can we talk about (laughs) Paul Vigilio and uh, Michel Serre? I I found these people, I don't know who they are, I got an education in more classical philosophy, but know nothing about these more Mm -hmm. avant-garde French uh, uh, (laughs) philosophers. So the guy was so stupefied that he said yes. And uh, funny enough, we still speak. So once a month, mm. I drive down to his house in Delft and ask him questions about texts that I would read myself. Oh, wow. And, and I, when you said, where did it come from? It was actually a very interesting question because I thought, God, I don't know. And it's just shot in my head. Mm. When I was in an amazing high school that um, had incredible uh, teachers in mathematics uh, physics, um, mostly those kind of professions, uh, or, or, or um, what do you call them, courses, and those people were incredible people. And the physics teacher gave us, if we wanted, in the evenings, philosophy classes. Mm-hmm. And I think that must have started there, because we would discuss as 14-year-olds or 15-year-olds <laughs> The meaning of life according to Plato. Wow. Yeah. Or Aristotle or whatever. No, like, and it was, uh, and we would be sitting there for hours and hours and hours and figure this out. So I think that's where it started. That's the short answer. So, so I mean, so it literally has been with you almost your whole life is, is yeah. the, you know, these kind of two sides. That's so interesting. Yeah. Uh, when you, I, I have kind of two questions. Uh, that I want to pull out of something that you said. The, the first one is you're, you're studying, you, you make the switch from sculpture to architecture and, and this was a very kind of classical education and you reach out to this, this philosopher. Did you see, did you see that philosophy or did you see reading those texts and having those conversations as something that was related to what you were studying when you were studying architecture or was that just, this is something else that I'm interested in or were these things that you were also kind of trying to put together in some way? Well, I had, um, I had friends who studied at the AA at that time in London, mm-hmm. in uh, mm-hmm. London and I would go a lot and, and mm-hmm. basically at some point also applied at the AA, but in the end didn't go to the AA, but went to Columbia. Um, so because of them, uh, I met uh, a lot of really interesting people. And I also found the very first uh, Zone uh, publications by mm. Sanford Quinter. Mm-hmm. And um, I remember reading those and thinking, my God, the world is so much bigger than we think in Holland. And the, the 
problems are so much more exciting and you know the things we can do are so much more amazing so i yeah. did a very tricky uh thesis project for my final thesis in holland thesis is still you know like where you uh publicly uh, present your thesis with a, right. with a team of uh examiners and full audience very scary um and i chose in my wisdom uh, to look at uh, not not white economy, black economy, but the gray economy and mm. free harbor uh, systems and um, design some sort of gray market <laughs> economy and terminal building in the harbor that I welded together. And, um, you know, it was like a really weird project. And this was in Holland, right, where everyone else is doing social housing and really beautiful proportionally perfect buildings and I had something that looked like an alligator <laughs> and, uh, and so yeah and you know that was that was but that's that's how I always was I was looking for things that weren't there because I felt the world had to be bigger and more interesting than than you could see at first glance and so I was always looking for threads or or right. other people who thought about this stuff too. And I still have that very first zone book uh, oh, that's great. that I bought in London. Uh, yeah. And I know Sanford now very well, of course. So it's kind of funny because, you know, maybe I'm the chair of architecture. At Penn. Yeah. So yeah, I, I run into everyone regularly. Um, but yeah, it's so, it's very funny. It's like full circle, but I want to, I want to come back and talk about teaching and talk about, uh, uh, about your teaching work. But I have one other question about your background and something that you said that I thought was interesting in that when you were studying sculpture before you kind of switched or transitioned over into architecture, you, you said that you didn't know what you wanted to say as a sculptor. You didn't know what you were, you would do as a sculptor. And I'm curious if you could talk more about that um, and kind of what that what you mean by that. It's like what you were going to say as an artist and does that have any relationship to what you're doing now? Yeah, very much. You know, I didn't want to sit by myself on an attic mm. as mm. a very famous artist doing things that only I cared about. I wanted to um, be part of a team, do things that meant something for society, for, uh, you know, I just wanted to do things that really contributed to the way we live and the way we think and the way we discuss things and I just really wanted to be part of a team so you know it's also why my office is called Architectonics uh, I didn't want my name to be in mm. the name of the office mm -hmm. well first of all you know like double dumb uh, <laughs> um, but, <laughs> right. but also I never even contemplated it because I felt you know, it's not about me. It's about what what we do as a team. And and when I lecture, people say, "What do you mean when you're saying we?" It's like, well, we, the team. You know, mm -hmm, like, mm -hmm. I, there's nothing you do in architecture alone. You work with your team in the office, with external uh, friends who are like other landscape architects or or structural engineers or whatever. And I, I that's what I love about being an architect is this kind of. Uh, collective intelligence that that you can put a bunch of really amazing people together and make something that is much bigger than you could do ever by yourself mm -hmm. and um and i i think that's totally amazing about architecture and i think and i still love that you know like this is what yeah. really 
drives me every day to put good teams together. And I like small teams personally, you know, I like mm. to be part of it. I don't want to be a manager and other people have the fun. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right. right. <laughs> I mean, it, it, it's kind of like what you were saying, you know, when you were in school and you were talking about the, the kind of philosophers that you had these interests and wanted to find other people to do those. And that's the same thing with, with architecture in, in a way, yeah. or, or running a studio is it's getting people together uh, who have similar interests, but different angles on that or come from different backgrounds and kind of seeing how that all fits together. So it's, you know, that thread has continued, interestingly yeah. enough. Yeah. yeah. I'm, I want to talk a little bit kind of specifically about the studio and kind of connect it to, to what we were just talking about. Um, because what, what's interesting to me about you and your work is you have this deep interest in the theory in, in research, in philosophy, in, you know, just kind of reading and thinking. There's this whole academic side of your work that, that we'll talk about. But I'm, I'm really interested in how that manifests itself both in the studio and like in the studio environment, but also in the projects that the studio does. Mm-hmm. How, how do you think about, or could you talk a little bit about that process of kind of your research interests, the things that you're thinking about and writing about and how that manifests itself either in the design process or even in the projects that you you build, how do those start to come together for you? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that is, uh, you know, I, I realized probably the most clearly how uh, we work is, or how I set up certain things in the office is when I did uh, my book with uh, Princeton Press. Mm-hmm. And I had an amazing editor in the beginning, Mark, who um, came back to me and said, you know, what's interesting about your work when I went through it, it seems like it's following bigger streams or strands of research or or, uh, investigations you're doing. Mm. Could you look at your work and see what they are and how they, um, you know, how they differentiate one group of projects from the others? So instead of making chapters according to small, medium, large or according to... Uh, you know, like, and, you know, just linear over time, he felt it was something like that. So I started looking and I realized that there were a group of projects that looked specifically at the transformation of uh, the wall from a separative Mm. uh, device into a connective membrane, like a a curtain wall uh, or, you know, whatever. It's no longer, let's say, the, the... meter thick wall of the medieval castles, right? It's a right, right. Thin layer of glass, skinny layer of glass. Um, then that research, that was kind of two and a half dimension, let's say. So it turned the flat wall into a two and a half, uh, the second and a half dimension um, kind of folded wall very often. And that turned into more a three-dimensional research, what we called armatures. And mm-hmm. those were things we created um, from the in, like, let's say a building from the inside out and that inner 3D object became the driver or the generator of all the other things that the building would do. So these armatures were self-generative and um, kind of uh, accelerators, you could say. Mm -hmm. So that that was two fields of research. And the last one was 
um, how uh, the city react to, to buildings and the buildings to city. Mm. So not mm-hmm. urban design at all, but like more of this boundary or where they clash into each other and what is the tension, fields of tension, let's say, rather than the zones of tension in the city that were interesting. So um, that was one thing. And then the other thing I realized um, kind of parallel to that is what you talk about is what you eventually do. <laughs> uh-huh. so when i when i did a lot of research about objects we did a lot of houses we did a lot of like we did inscape uh, meditation dome we do a lot of work with industrial designers one of my favorite collaborators has actually the biggest independent car and whatever boat uh, design company uh, in california he does a lot of our prototyping and developing with us uh, how to how to think of buildings or spaces more as industrial objects rather than you know pieces of clay right put together with grout um, so that's that's one uh, strand and then the other one was when I started talking about the city um, that I realized I started to get invited by people to uh, consult on cities and not mm. urban design because I think master plans are some kind of a thing of the 60s. <laughs> but more, um, how do you reinvigorate a city? Like, for example, I had one project. It was actually a project, which I thought was the most amazing project I ever got. <laughs> was okay. the client walked in and he said, could you help me and make a bottom-up design for downtown Bogota? Mm. And I had given for the same person a lecture in um in Bogota, uh, and I guess I was there talking about cities and and mm-hmm. uh, and um, you know the bouncing of buildings and cities against each other, and so he asked me this question, and it was an actual project project, and I have never been happier because it was the moment where my academic research really collapsed into the practice, and I had this yeah. chance to to help or to get my office into a really large field of research, and so. We developed for downtown Bogota a set of, um, you could say, acupunctures, but essentially bottom-up design is um, something where you, you like, the actual definition of bottom-up in Webster's, let's say, in the dictionary, is mm-hmm. that um, you're looking for things that are intrinsically already there, and then you mm. accelerate those. So right. that's why I'm saying acupunctures. So I started looking in downtown Bogota, that is actually a vast area, it's very large. Um, what I could find that I felt were drivers or potential uh, things that could be the accelerators of not only growth of the city, but growth of economies and social relationships and culture. Mm-hmm. So um, we made five of those. Um, five of those drivers, and they often had an architectural input also. Um, but sort of what we te- the way we tested it was to see whether if you would do this one project, what would be the feedback loop and which markets and which new groups and which uh, potential feedback loops could you start to instigate. And if we could find for certain things like more than three, we would consider it successful. So we only did it if we could see potential changes on three or four different levels. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, so I gave a TED talk on that in TED Global in Edinburgh in I think 2011 maybe. Um, mm-hmm. 
and um, we had a big exhibit with the same client. So the, the client's question was, I want you to do this. I want you to do a TED talk about it. And I want you to do it <laughs> and a uh, conference about it. So right. we did the design. We made a huge book. We, I presented it in very, you know, you know, TED talks are very short, right? What's it, 16 <laughs> minutes or something? I did it in 16 minutes. It was there. And then we had a large exhibit on AIDIS in Berlin. Um, yeah. And AIDIS is one of, I think, one of the best architecture galleries uh, in the world, but it's also very focused on cities. Mm. And so we had this amazing panel um, where we invited scholars and urbanists and architects to talk about the same subject. And it was super, super interesting. So, yeah, so that, that, that's what I mean. Like, you know, you start thinking about it and then talking yeah. about it and then these things happen. So that's kind of how, how most of my practice actually developed. You said something interesting where it was like that was the first time that your academic interests and the studio interests started to kind of collapse into each other. Before that, and this was like 2011 or so, so, you know, almost, almost 10 years ago, before that, did you see those two sides of your work as separate, the kind of academic and the, and the research work and the studio work? And, um, yeah, or yeah, were there opportunities yeah, for that before? Much more. I was very, very, very uh, early in um, digital design. So I studied mm-hmm. in Colombia, my postgrad, uh, 91, 92, and I basically was one of the first to actually completely graduate with digital, <laughs> mm, right. uh, digital animation and, uh, and renders. And um, and then worked for Eisenman, where we uh, got sent to Ohio to learn Form Z. <laughs> okay, yeah. <laughs> it was kind of cute. So it was like Form Z was the hot new thing. Uh-huh. And uh, <laughs> it was funny, right? And uh, yeah. the first little Macintoshes, the two CIs. Right. And, uh, you know, I so I, from the beginning, was 3D. But what was interesting, because I was a sculptor, I had to, because I could not think flat. I cannot, if mm. I see a plan, I understand the plan. It doesn't mean anything to me. So I think of everything 3D in my head. Oh, and it takes me a while to get it out. But that's why for me, design 3D, uh, designing 3D in the computer is much more uh, helpful. And so from the beginning, I was always working 3D in the computer. And then we would slice sections through it and then print and print it and draw by hand all the plans and sections. It was kind of the inverted a model of most offices that would sketch by hand and then put it in AutoCAD. I never used AutoCAD. I always used Rhino, Z, Maya. And I was uh, the first one probably in the US that had a paperless studio uh, in one classroom in 95, I think, or six uh, at Penn. And uh, they just gave me a classroom and I I asked for, you know, the the right computers and uh, to put Maya on it. And then uh, I told my my first paperless paperless studio, very cute. Let's let's kind of stay in this this moment for a second because we're kind of talking about these two sides of your work, and we've been talking about the the studio side. When did you start teaching, or how did when did you kind of realize that that teaching and academia was something that you could do in parallel to mm-hmm. the studio work? Well, I had always worked when I was uh, studying in Holland. Like I worked for mm-hmm. an office that worked very tightly together with Rem Kolhas. So I saw oh, okay. basically a few times a week. Um, so that, that was always, and I guess when I started, so the way I transitioned from Peter's office to my own office was that um, 
the the world changed uh, also when the um, Cold War was over. Mm-hmm. So when mm-hmm. the Cold War was over, the Berlin Wall came down, and we had mm-hmm. with Peter's office many projects in uh, Germany, and mm-hmm. a lot of them went on hold or uh, got cancelled. My project got on hold, and so I asked Peter for a two months leave of absence because I wanted to do a competition. And I had an exhibition that um, I was asked for and, you know, I wanted to do. So I did those two things. And in the middle of it, Peter uh, had to shrink his office drastically down because, (laughs) you know, the famous Berlin Wall. Right. And and I realized that because I was (laughs) not in the office, I wasn't fired, but I was exactly (laughs) coming back. Yeah. Uh, And I got in that same week, I think, a call from Bernard Chumi who said, hey, Ben from Berkeley is teaching, but he can't make it the first whole month. Uh, mm. Could you teach with Ben? So as Ben's oh, wow. And uh, I knew Ben from Holland already. Mm-hmm. And so I taught with Ben. My first teaching job was third year Columbia. Uh, okay. I just finished, so this is 94. I just finished in 92, okay. <laughs> which was interesting. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but yeah, so I taught that and uh, with Ben, which is really fun, and then um, went on a review at Penn and then got hired 95 at Penn. So okay. I, I was, uh, and in the same time, I had started my office. I rented one desk in a studio on Mercer Street where 10, ten architects had uh, an office together, and uh, one of the people that I knew there wanted to go to Kansas to teach. Mm. And so for, I think, $150, I rented a desk. <laughs> that was my office. <laughs> so I had an office. I built a little gallery on uh, West Broadway that uh, that was cool because it had a, a courtyard. So there was an outside component, mm. an inside component to it. Mm-hmm. And uh, and I was one of the few people at that point building because, you know, the, it was weird. The economy was not great either. Mm-hmm. Um, so all our professors were kind of paperless architects, as you call that. Um, <laughs> right. And but I was Dutch, you know, I basically always was building. So I never thought about it. I just proposed things. And then people would go, sure. <laughs> and so, I mean, I guess I didn't, I guess I didn't kind of fully put together this timeline until you started kind of recounting this story. So you were teaching at Penn you started teaching a pen at around the same time that architectonics, that you started architectonics. So those were always happening at the same time, right? Always. Yeah, always. Yeah, so I, I was at Penn. I did eight years of one semester at Penn and one semester at Columbia. Okay. Um, then I did a few years of a few semesters at Harvard. Okay. Um, and then Penn didn't quite like that. And both of them <laughs> were always like, oh, why are you like half there, not always yeah. here? And I was like, yeah, because it kind of like, I never wanted to be tenured. I thought it was interesting to investigate, right? Like, why would you want to be tenured? And uh, so um, in 2003, um, Penn asked me to start a second master's. We had kind of postgraduate students coming in, but they just fell into uh, third year Mm -hmm. and drowned because at that point we'd made it pretty much uh, digital already. Um, So they asked me whether I wanted to start a second master's. And so for 10 years I ran that from 2003 and I became a practice professor at that point. So from 2003 to 2013, I did that and then, 2013 asked me whether I wanted to be the chair. 
And so and that's exactly kind of where my next question was headed to, because you are the chair of the, the Department of Architecture there now. And I'm really interested in, in a, in a lot of ways, what this whole conversation has been about so far. How does, I have a, a couple questions around uh, the chairship and kind of your role there, but just to, to begin, how does that work overlap with the studio work? Are those influencing each other in any way? Are things you're thinking about in the classroom coming back into the studio or projects you're working on in the studio influencing what you're, what you're teaching? What does that kind of cycle look like for you? Well, what is funny because I did most, so I did the most uh, speculative work at Penn but I did the most research-oriented work <laughs> in my office. Which okay. is oh, interesting. Yeah. yeah. So some of that speculation came from Penn into my work, and a lot of the research, because I would get the project for Bogota, and then once we were done with that, I would give it to my students at Penn, to the postgraduate students, and the same mm. client would pay for you know, having the students come to Bogota, and we would have 45 students doing a study on Bogota. And I've done that with many projects. Actually, I did that recently also. Um, when we were in the competition, I do it first for the office. And then when I think it's interesting research, I give it to the students. So oh, there's definitely that kind of uh, feedback. And it's interesting because you can, you know, sort of check how you did it and how the, how the school does right. it, you know, how your students do it. So um, that definitely has, there is always a back and forth. We never do the same project at the same time because I find that too confusing. But yeah, there's definitely a lot, a lot of overlap. And a lot of people that I meet in my practice is, I think, hugely beneficial for Penn because by now I know so many people. Um, I got published quite a bit, um, you know, especially when I was doing all the buildings like 497 Greenwich with the folded glass and a vestry with a translucent stone. And so, you know, that, that got published a lot. So I got to know quite a lot of publishers and, and I gave the 497 was also in the Arsenale, in the Venice Biennale. Um, I did a project for Max Projects for the future of the of downtown, right? After the World Trade Center came down. Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. That also went to the Biennale. There was a, we did a computer game uh, testing like impulses in the city and then we would we would we basically made a, an algorithm in the in the computer that or in the software that if you put in certain um, uh, parameters then the sort of a city model would grow from that. Um, so that little guy went also to the Venice Biennale but in the American Pavilion and then I think Library uh, Library of Congress bought it. Um, so it sits somewhere in the Library of Congress right now. So yeah, so things like that. You know, it's a lot of stuff going on everywhere. Yeah, 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 exactly. Project especially is is interesting to me because something I wanted to talk to you about is this sort of redefinition or redefining or expansion of ideas of architecture or what we think of as architecture. And I know at Penn, you started, you brought in like a robotics uh, department or started kind of talking about yeah. robotics. And there's this so much of your work is about thinking about the future, about kind of pushing the limits or finding the edges of what we what we might think of as architecture. Mm -hmm. um, how do you kind of think about that, or or even, you know, just to, you know more specifically, this word architecture and kind of how that has changed over your career? Mm. 
Yeah, I mean, I you know, for me, architecture is just you know basically everything you want to do that you like. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, I love that. That's that's how, that's what I say with with the word design too. Yeah. So it's the same. <laughs> yeah, so it's like this beautiful compilation of interests. But uh, the, the the thing is that what is kind of daunting to me that I hate being the boss of anything, and and my life has just turned into this weird thing that I get asked to run things. But I realize. <laughs> Maybe because I hate being a boss, I'm not really a bossy person. So I make it as teams of people or, yeah. you know, I like to think of, and especially, of course, in academics, you know, as a chair, you're really not at all the boss. You're just basically giving direction to a group of super smart people um, right. that, that you collaborate with to improve education or whatever. But what is nice as a chair is you set the agenda and because my agenda is so specific um, and my interests are so specific is that what I, what I realized very early on with the digital was that um, people sometimes defend their boxes, let's say the box mm -hmm. of technology, the box of history theory, the box of whatever in practice as well as in academics. And I think what is beautiful about digital design and working cross-platform like you do also in a, as a graphic designer, right? You use mm -hmm. many different softwares for different yeah. specific things. The same in architecture, we use many different softwares to, to get certain things done. Um, but that, that also erases these harsh boundaries so that, you know, you're... Right. 3D model of a structure goes to the engineer that his information comes back, influences, or just, you know, starts to change the shapes, the folds in your spaces start to be part of the structural folds. So these kind of uh, larger meta discussions are very formative for the way uh, we think about architecture and the integration of other um, professions or erase the boundaries, the harsh boundaries where you make a beautiful space and then when it's completely done, you give it to a structure engineer and they mm -hmm. enjoy it. And they right. hate you and you hate them. And I think that that is completely gone. You know, like we all work on the same structure from the beginning and kind of really work together in how to finish it. And that is with every possible consultant and engineer, landscape people. Yeah. Um, and the beauty of that is also that then the way you start to think about education is that it becomes a much more integral way of teaching. So it is not you have history theory classes and studio. No, you ask the people from history theory as experts in the semester right. and you say, what should the students read if they study this? Mm -hmm. Or we have a semester where we teach them how to work with engineers. So we actually hire people from Ova Arab, Bureau Happold, um, any possible interesting uh, uh, facade, front, the people from front teach with us. So they're, but they're actually hired as consultants to work with our students. So they're not hired mm. as professors. They're hired as external experts. Uh, right. So it's really fun. And so in that way, it's never design studio only. It's very much design studio with something embedded in it. We could very easily spend the rest of this conversation talking about this idea. I I love this, and it's something I think about all the time when I'm teaching graphic design students. And mm -hmm. I'm I, I had read in I read your introduction in Pressing Matters, which is Penn's um, architecture kind of 
what is, is that annually that you publish that? Yeah, that's an annual. Uh, yeah. The, the annual book, in the introduction to the most recent one, you refer to the program as a, as a think tank or as a laboratory of ideas. And I love both of those terms to, to describe the kind of, uh, you know, institutional studio. Mm-hmm. Uh, and as someone, you know, like yourself, I think, who is really interested in making things, but is also really interested in the theoretical and in, in the ideas, when I'm working with my students, I'm constantly fighting this internal battle that might be self-imposed. Um, and so I might just be asking you teaching advice right now, just <laughs> by the way, um, between what is the balance between teaching, thinking about the classroom as a think tank, as a laboratory of ideas, as, as ways to kind of work through research interests, or you know, maybe in, in your case, the, the agenda that you set for the department with the kind of very practical things that a architecture student needs to know. Mm-hmm. Um, do you think about, do you think about that as something that you have to balance or how does all of that kind of come together for you? The, whether that is software ideas, you know, structural things with, you know, thinking about architecture as being anything that you want to do. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I mean, you know, just <laughs> the one amazing thing about being chair is, uh, well, I was very lucky, I should say first, is that the school grew enormously when I started. We, mm. I don't know what we did, but we just attracted huge amount of students that all said yes, where normally mm. we would have gotten 30% saying yes, we suddenly got like 40%, 45% sometimes. Oh, wow. So instead of 70 students in first year, we'd have like somewhere around 90 to 100 students. <laughs> very scary. Okay. Um, but what was amazing about it is that I was able to double the standing faculty and also um, get a huge amount of hires in the associated faculty. So the benefit was there that, you know, we could, for example, to look at something like structures where we had an amazing mm-hmm. professor in place, but then combine that professor or have him collaborate with a new faculty member mm-hmm. we hired from um, the ETH, the block group. Uh, who was thinking about more um, complex geometries and uh, new ways of structural um, thinking and and calculating. Mm -hmm. So, but then we don't put these people against each other. We basically um, introduce them to each other so that they can learn together different methods to teach our students both the, the more conventional way of thinking in structures that was also pretty advanced already, but combine that with this very far advanced, uh, more uh, complex geometry um, thinking. And I think that that is what kind of has been my way of uh, moving forward with everything so that in the end, you don't have that discrepancy between what we call boring classes. Right, right. So those are now super exciting. You know, you have some person from the ETH that does amazing structures. And the yeah. kids can't wait to be in his class. So yeah, it's it's fun. It's really amazing to to kind of be able to create those kind of challenges and uh, and really, I mean, I enjoy it myself. You, you're yeah. able to hire amazing colleagues. So yeah, that's uh, been great. It's interesting to me that throughout all of your work, whether it's the studio or at, at Penn, um, that there is a it seems like there's an importance on 
content creation, on publishing, on kind of sharing knowledge. You, you are writing a lot. Um, how does all of that fit in? So it's not just kind of working with your students or working with the studio, but then also making all of that public. Why is that? How is that important to you? Mm -hmm. yeah. <laughs> I, uh, you learn from people that yeah. you have worked for. So when I came to the US, um, uh, I was early for my semester at Columbia and I did a few months in Stephen Hall's office and a few months mm -hmm. competition with Bernard Chumi. And then um, I did Columbia and I learned a lot. I have to say, I was telling this to Chumi actually the other day when I saw him, he, he threw a little event. And I <laughs> said to him, you know, I really, I've never had the time to actually, or remembered, sorry, uh, to thank you because you sure. really taught me a lot about how to build teams uh, in a university, how to, um, yeah, kind of invert situations. Chumi was an absolute master in um, putting people together that were not necessarily in the same, um, not going in the same direction, but actually really valued everyone equally. And um, the other thing, of course, he did was create Columbia's magazine. And right. that was um, an absolute highlight for us students to, well, one, who you wanted to be in it. <laughs> and yeah. two, later when you started teaching, you raced straight to the back to see whether you were in the photos about their reviews, right? Like, you know, <laughs> right, right. And, um, and I thought that was, that was really stunning. Um, so I learned that very much from Chumi. From teaching at Harvard, I learned that it's really important to be an amazing host and to be extremely professional and thoughtful. Mm. And uh, I mean, I have never been treated uh, as well as when I taught at Harvard. Mm. Um, very generous, very amazing colleagues, uh, really great circumstances, really nice. And uh, so when I became chair, I tried to kind of think about, um, you know, also thing I learned myself when I was doing my postgraduate uh, course that grew from like 12 students to like in the end, maybe 48 or something. Um, mm -hmm. we, we didn't have any money really. The, the school wouldn't give me a budget. So I raised my own funds and I would mm -hmm. usually find someone um, that would do research with us and then pay for the trip of the students and pay for the book. And I started right. publishing every year a book with the postgraduate students saying like, hey, you don't only do a postgraduate study, but you're getting your own book, not a school right. catalog. Your yeah. book on your research. And, uh, you know, it was also designed by them with me. Mm -hmm. And uh, so when I started uh, as a chair, I thought it's really important that we share and that we become better hosts and that we're very open source and we we share with our peers, not just in Penn, but also especially outside of Penn and across the world, you know, what we are thinking about and what we're working about and uh, working on and, and, you know, be generous with that, like really share it. So yeah. um, my last book I published in the postgraduate was called Pressing Matters. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and so when I started as chair, my first book was Pressing Matters 2, because the <laughs> first one was in my postgraduate. So right. everyone was like, 
Okay. I thought you started last year. I was like, yeah, yeah, I did. But, you know, I did a pressing matters before, and this is just, yeah. so I, I like to throw wild cards in once in a while, <laughs> make people wonder. Um, yeah. So pressing matters too. And then after two or three years, I realized uh, when I lectured, you know, throughout the U.S. that the pressing matters, matters ended up in libraries and people were using it as teaching material. And so I met uh, the publisher, Oro. Mm-hmm. And I said to him, are you interested in publishing it? So for the last, like, like the first uh, half, we probably self-published and the last half has been published by Oro and now distributed uh, internationally. So it's very nice. Yeah, that's great. I love that. Um, it's such a great idea. And I, I, in, in a lot of ways, I kind of feel like this podcast is that kind of idea in in a lot of the things that we're talking about, kind of bringing people together, but then making these conversations public yeah. to as wide an audience yeah, as possible. Exactly. So I totally, I totally uh, am on board with, with the way that you think about that. Mm-hmm. I'm interested in what, uh, what are you thinking about now? What are your interests now? You'd mentioned, you know, kind of setting the agenda and there were these kind of research themes that come up in your work a lot. What are the, what are the next things that you're thinking about? Well, I'm working on the fourth book uh, with Akhtar. Mm. And okay. funny enough, this whole um, social distancing uh, moment has created some little gaps in my time. It has created a huge density of work and some <laughs> little gaps in my time. Yeah, right. So Sounds found, about right. Yeah, I found some more time to work on that. Um, and the book is not so much about the end product of what we uh, work on in the office, but really... Uh, what we call strange objects. It's the moments we find in the process of, because we don't work as traditional architects. We work with, because we work with this guy and with this car design company and mm-hmm. we work with prefab people. Um, there's a lot of prototyping going on. And uh, often in the prototyping phase, we we learn something about the object we didn't know. You find some strange space or some strange moment mm. in the way they're made when they actually kind of still close to ugly, which is my favorite moment. <laughs> yeah. um, and then often I freeze it there. You know, I don't do what I, you know, maybe, right. maybe it had to be still like sanded a million times and polished and whatever. And I find it in the prototyping phase with all the grooves from the CNC router in it. And I'm thinking this is the perfect thing. You know, it should not be touched again. Right. So I do that often, you know, where I just leave it. I just yeah. understand that in we live in a world that is too complete, I think, or too finished. Right, yeah. Smooth. And I, I like, and maybe that's the sculptor in me, but I like things to carry traces of making or traces of mm-hmm. their short little history um, mm-hmm. and to kind of communicate that. And uh, So that that is, uh, the book is about that, the strange objects we find halfway. And then there is a little gallery with the end result. But to me, uh, that phase is really interesting and I'm writing about it, you know, the incompleteness or the ugliness or, or the, yeah. the fact that ugly is beautiful is another kind of beauty. I, I, I kind of want to end the conversation with just what are you reading right now? Ah, I am reading Rem's uh, Countryside Report tiny oh. book. Um, I always read a lot of literature. I'm still like the kid in the kid library person. Yeah. So I have a pile of books here. Um, let me see, what else? Oh, and I'm rereading uh, 
because I'm using it for my text. I I read I'm reading a little bit of Jane Bennett oh. uh, on strange objects. I love mm-hmm. the text of um, uh, Edmund Husserl, um, kind of a, a philosopher in geometry from 1937. Okay. Um, there's a little book um, that uh, is a text of of one of his larger books, let's say. But the funny thing is the text is maybe a quarter of the book and three quarters of the book is an introduction by Derrida. Mm. Uh, oh, interesting. Yeah, it's called The Origin of Geometry. Um, very, And so I'm kind of rereading that. I've read it a million times, but I love reading mm-hmm. that little book. Um, I always read a little bit in uh, Thousand Plateaus. Oh, yeah. One of my favorite books. I love yeah. just grabbing it and read a little bit in it. I never read it linearly, but I read it kind of randomly. Um, yeah, stuff like that. I'm always reading a few things at the same time. This was such a great conversation. I, I really enjoyed it and really like your work and how you think about all of your work. So thank you so much for uh, being on the podcast. Yeah, thank you for having me. And you, you really ask amazing questions. This episode was recorded on April 2nd, 2020. Our theme music is by Andy Borgasani. We're on Twitter and Instagram at Surface Podcast. You can find us wherever you get your podcasts and at scratchingthesurface.fm. Thanks for listening.